0: Welcome to Season 2. As I mentioned before, I have very few memories of Season 2, other than a small handful of episodes. So a lot of this is completely unknown territory for me. I'm going to try and go in with a nice open mind, but I do know that there's at least two historical incidents I want to discuss. Um, one around the episode that I can't remember the name of right now. I wrote it down. Precious Cargo. One we need to talk about during Precious Cargo, and one we need to talk about during night sickbay <clears throat> so we'll see how that goes when we get there but i do have a couple of things to share just some interesting factoids i talked before about foundation imaging i don't remember exactly when i first started mentioning them i feel it was the swarm back in voyager foundation imaging was brought in after their work on babylon 5 to do work on star trek and actually did several bits of work for star trek over quite a few years um eight or nine years, something like that. Unfortunately, for reasons that I'm still not 100% clear on, Foundation Imaging went... And as a consequence of that, Star Trek stopped having using them as one of their houses for visual effects. Now, I say one of. That's actually important to keep in mind, okay? Because what they did was they had multiple visual effects houses. Uh, I believe three at the height, although these would rotate in and out, so that's why I mentioned at the height. There was one other one called uh, Eden FX. Uh, Eden FX they brought in at season seven of Voyager, and they had also done some of the work back in Enterprise season one. Now, Enterprise was doing okay, relatively speaking, for season one. I know that sounds kind of strange to mention, but it's true, at least from the perspective of the executives. <sighs> this is a good time to mention that the people who make the decisions, I, I like to call them the money people. Uh, and the reason I call them that is because it's not like it's one position. You know, we like to say executives, but actually, the specific groups of people who make decisions, actually make decisions about games or books or movies or shows, are not always the same people in the same titles in the same organizations. So I just ca- came up with the blanket term money people to refer to the people who actually make the calls. Since make. My- so the money people had decided that enterprise was doing well one of the biggest factors they used back at this point historically to figure this out was nielsen ratings nielsen ratings are a load of garbage i'm sorry they they are they are a total the the more you've researched nielsen ratings the more you'll probably look at that be like really now here's the thing that made sense back then and i don't want to sound too dismissive of nielsen ratings because I mean, when you're in the 80s and the 90s, there's not a lot you can do to accurately gauge the actual factual input on how your show is doing. Nowadays, if you release a show on, say, Netflix, you can see exact concrete data of how many people watched a specific episode, how much of that episode people watched on average, and... Uh, how many people go through which episodes in which order, or how many people cut off at a certain point, and so forth and so on. There is tangible data we have access to now. They didn't really have that back then. So the Nielsen rating system was a bad idea, but it was also the only idea they had, so I'm, I'm giving some credit here. Or giving some leeway, I suppose. But the problem is Nielsen ratings really are not indicative of real life there's actually a wonderful chart someone put together of the Nielsen ratings of Star Trek, from TNG to DS9 to Voyager to Enterprise. And it, it's not that unindicative, but at the same time, you look at that chart and you're like... Because what basically happened was TNG stayed high, DS9 started high and then went low. You know, them having ratings issues throughout the whole thing, something I've referenced before, actually. And was made fun of for it. Then we have Voyager, who started high and then plummeted. Then we have Enterprise, who started high and then plummeted. And had one peak. And then plummeted further than Star Trek has ever been. And that's the Nielsen ratings for these shows. That, that peak and that plummet both happened during this season, by the way. But again, that's not really indicative of reality. And it doesn't take into account any other thing that might come along like this. Like, well... How many of you used to get your own VCRs and record Star Trek episodes or anything else yourself, like I did? I know I was not alone in that. I mean, I was well off, relatively speaking, but like, I wasn't that unique, right? By contrast, if you re-watch an episode of something on Netflix or on Amazon or whatever, that gets another ding, that gets another watch click, You know, another value for that figure. And it gets another click that shows exactly how much... How many minutes has been spent watching that episode. So, all of a sudden, we have more data available. I mean, I'm I'm all in favor of privacy, but this kind of stuff is... This kind of tactile tangible data is extremely useful. That's not tactile at all. This kind of hard data is extremely useful for determining how well a show is actually doing, as opposed to vague guesses based on people who are barely paid money to kind of fill out a survey which they may or may not have filled out properly, which also doesn't take into account many other factors, including multiple televisions or uh, different age groups or like a dozen other factors. Like I said, the more you look into it, the more it's just nonsense. But I bring all this up because Enterprise was actually doing okay according to the money people. They decided that, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to throw more money at it. The budget per episode went up, the visual effects demands went up, and several mandates were passed down from on high. Uh, these mandates included the fact that, you know, they wanted far more special effects focus. This goes back to the whole foundation imaging thing. Because naturally, if you want more special effects, the first thing you do is get rid of one of your, your houses for doing visual effects and make the other one do all of them. Wait, actually, that makes no sense at all. The next thing you do is you ensure that you release the next major motion picture you're going to release for your franchise in a way that is absolutely detrimental to its release, pretty much sacrificing it to Lord of the Rings and ensuring that it won't get any major funding back. Wait, that's not what you do either. This is one of the reasons why I have suspected for some time that Enterprise was actively being sabotaged by the money people. Oh, they were going through the motions, you know, throwing, uh, throwing money at it and trying to, to push a few things. But what they actually did was cut off Enterprise at the knees. Now, I have said myself several times that Nemesis is what killed Star Trek, and I stand by that statement. But it's worth noting Nemesis comes out during this season. During an episode that I'll mention later. And, they, you know, in terms of real life terms. And I really, really feel like several people involved were just like, you know what? Screw it. Just, just, screw it. That's a damn shame. I don't know why they would do that, but then again, as we've discussed before, money people will do things for all kinds of reasons, some of which are legitimately nonsensical. Giant spiders but i mentioned the fx thing uh, eden fx who like i said has been involved here uh, not only were they you know no longer having another company to help share the load but they were being told they had to do more special effects shots than ever sabotage and excuse me sabotage let me say that properly to give you an idea here this episode had a little over 300 shots of special effects now that may not sound super special since broken bow had that many but to give you another bit of perspective here Season 1 had about 2,700 shots across the, the whole of it, whereas Season 2 had 2,900, uh, 2, which, again, doesn't sound like a big jump up until you consider just how much of a workload that is and how much of a spike that is. It's effectively like had, adding on another two entire episodes worth of special effects onto Season 2. Also, that 300, that means a little over 10% of all the visual effects in all of Season 2 were done In this episode, by One Studio. I'm going to be paying attention to the quality of the CGI as we go, too. I have no preconception there. I'm just curious how it's going to do relative to Season 1 or, you know, the Voyager stuff. Anyways, I mentioned a few mandates, though. Uh, Some of those mandates were kind of weird. But there were two big mandates that were really pushed. One, less serialization. You know, I actually was really getting into the continuity and the, the arcs thing that they were doing in Enterprise Season One. Silly me. The other mandate, you'll you'll find this one funny. More sexy. I'm not joking. They wanted to sex up Enterprise Season two more. I have heard from Braga in particular several times. Now, whether you believe him or not is up to you, but I am I, ki- I kind of think he was legit here because he has said multiple times in multiple interviews how much it pisses him off, how much they tried to sex up Enterprise. And I say they because, well, I, I mean, this is the soldier and the officer dilemma all over again, isn't it? Who's to blame, the soldier who shoots or the officer who orders it? Because Braga was the soldier here. Anyways... You'll notice Berman does not apologize for that, by the way. Last time on Enterprise. I mentioned that because it's one of the only remaining tactile... I keep using that word. Tangible. Tactile. It's one of the only remaining tangible pieces of evidence that this used to be called Enterprise rather than Star Trek Enterprise. I mean, we know that. We have records that show that. But in the episode, we have a proof, if you will, that this show used to be just Enterprise. Because... I know you're thinking, well, don't they always just say last time on The Next Generation? No. No, they say last time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Like, I bet you can hear it right now. But no, this time they say last time on Enterprise. It's actually Bacula doing it particularly. So, T'Pol decides to cooperate instead of fight back. I don't know if that was the right call. I mean, you could argue that it was because it saved the ship. And sometimes, you know, knowing when to fold them is a valid talent, as I've pointed out many times. But, I mean, if you're going to revolt eventually, putting yourself into a weaker position where the enemy can dictate your position more does not sound like a feasible thing to do, right? Like, let's say someone's approaching you with a gun, pointed at your head, and they say, surrender. So you can fight back right there, or you can surrender, at which point they will cuff you and bind you, and gag you, and put a bag over your head. And now you have to fight back, now that you are in a much worse position. Fortunately, in television, most of the time, villains only do that when they're trying to show how cruel and unusually evil they are. So instead, they do the typical thing and let them all just be in their quarters while they conduct their scans of the ship. In short, they are actually put in a better position to revolt after they're captured. That's a pretty common thing in fiction, actually. But it was a gamble. Remember that the second in command is constantly pushing Cilic. Uh, like constantly, it's one scene. But in this one scene, he's like, "You should destroy Enterprise. You should destroy Enterprise. You should destroy Enterprise." Like he's just got some kind of fetish for it or something. Cilic doesn't because Cilic's interesting as a villain. I hope you enjoy him here. By the way, you won't see him again until season three. I'm not joking. I looked it up. I looked it up. The sulaban the Cabal, will show up again. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm not sure it's the Cabal. The Sulaban will show up in the future. But not Silic. He will show up again in The Expanse over in Season 3. So that's neat. Anyways. So Silic... Actually, let's let's get back to Silic. Let's rewind a second. Let's talk about the future. First of all, Daniels' outfit is terrible. Is is that just me? I mean, there's plenty of outfits in Star Trek which are... Looking at you, Season 1 TNG. But... I really didn't like his weird, veiny, kind of pseudo-jumpsuit thing. I don't know. Not my thing. This is a good time to mention that uh, the episode had a great way to explain away its temporal logic and still remain general coherence, and decided not to because it's stupid. Hear me out for a second. So, at one point, Archer says, Why am I here, and why are you here? And Daniel's response is, Uh... This is a guy who can reconstruct a temporal communicator with spare parts, stone knives, and bearskins, But he doesn't know this? I could tell you the answer to that. One malleable timeline, right? Type 2 time travel. So here's the timeline. And here's the past. Here's the, the future. And what happens is archer is pulled here. Now what happens is that action is effectively instantaneous. But what also happens is t- history is fundamentally changed, so none of this happens. The Federation never formed. Everything goes to hell. But he was still pulled forward to the same point in time. He arrived there. It's just the there he arrived to is now different. Bam. That's why Archer's there. This is very simple. Why Daniel's there, that's a lot trickier. I actually put some thought into figuring that one out. The headcanon answer I came up with was, put simply, he was in the time chamber when Archer was pulled forward. And... You ever heard of the Time Traveler's Exemption Clause? For those of you who haven't, the Time Traveler's Exemption Clause is a rule that's usually written into fiction to make time travel uh, possible. It basically, the, the way it is designed is the people who time travel are immune to time travel. Make sense? So if you go back right now and kill your own grandfather, you don't fade away because you're a time traveler. Now, some settings will bake that into the specific method of time travel, and Star Trek's actually done that. There, I- there is such a thing as temporal shielding, and there is such a thing as aligning themselves to, you know, a way where they are outside of the usual flow of time so they can observe changes of time. Otherwise, there's no actual way to observe changes in time because it's changed a, a few thousand years ago, and it always was this way from your perspective. Sense make. Okay, so I'm with it. So all you had to do is have Daniels be in the chamber which is protected from time, so he can both observe and alter time without himself being altered when he pulled Archer forwards. This then leads to the problem. Why is the whole facility not temporally protected? In fact, why, is, why were there not other random people who were temporally protected when this happened? Across most of history... Now, you want to get into really horrifying thoughts, it's entirely possible there were people who were temporally protected across history when this hit. So imagine someone in a ship. Well, they're fine because they're still in their ship. But imagine someone who is in a building that doesn't exist anymore. And so all of a sudden, there's just time shifts around them, and the, 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 the chunk of the room they're in that's protected just kind of starts plummeting because it's no longer in a building that was never there. And I'm, I'm saying this laughingly. That's just because I'm evil. There's a lot of really horrifying stuff you could do with that. Imagine someone who is on a space station who is now effectively on an escape pod. Now here's the best part. If they turn off the temporal shielding, nothing changes, because there's no alterations now happening. But if they turn off the shielding and things are fixed, then it will have never happened from their perspective. So which is more preferable? Leave the shielding on, and hope, or turn the shielding off, and hope? God, that sounds like a horror story, doesn't it? Anyways, this of course then leads to the question of why the, action, the other future people, the guys in ships don't do anything about this whole series of events and this also starts to fall apart and like i said the whole building should probably be temporally shielded that just makes a degree of sense so why isn't it naturally the problem here is my own answer of temporal shielding here is effectively headcanon answer even though that is actually a thing in star trek it doesn't it's not in the episode daniels himself flat out states i don't know why i'm here We know why he's there. It's so that Archer's not stranded in the future and dies of starvation. Or possibly dehydration, whichever hits first. But the episode doesn't bother to think of an answer to this question. And even my own posited answer poses another question. Like I said, why is the whole building not shielded? And if the whole building was shielded, well then he has access to plenty of things to be able to go back and fix things, right? So how then do you construct the episode if he's just there with all this temporal stuff and able to access the past? Well, that's easy. Politics and fear. No, really, hear me out for a second. So let's say he's pulled into the future. It's all devastation, except for the room he's in, which is pristine. Almost eerily clean, you know, like that really squeaky, like unnaturally clean aesthetic. You know what I'm talking about. So he's looking around like, oh, this is strange. He looks out the window. Ruins everywhere. Okay. Daniel shows up. Oh, my God. You're here. At least at least you made the jump. Although, here's what I can tell. This is exactly what happened. You'd have to hire on a few more guest stars, but you're already throwing money at these episodes. You raised the budget by like several million dollars. Come on. Hire a few more people. So have a few other people show up, and it turns out that time has been altered by pulling Archer forward as well as the altercations that Future Guy was already doing several hundred years ago. Right? With me so far? Now, because those alterations reacted in an unexpected way, Future Guy isn't there anymore. The episode actually does do this. This is why Silicon can no longer contact him, because he doesn't exist anymore, especially since he's Archer. But I'll get to that in a minute. So... You know, they're trying to figure out what the heck to do about this. And Archer's like, well, just send me back. This is so stupid. Send me back. And everyone pretty much responds as one, no! See, first of all, what they did was something that the calculation said should have had no particular impact, and instead caused devastation at a level that was previously unprecedented. Which means there are variables they're not aware of. I would use this as foreshadowing to foreshadow the Sphere Builders and the fact that they are interacting with this, the Temporal Cold War as well in a way that nobody's really noticed yet. Now, obviously that is a complete violation of how they approach the Zindi in Season 3, but that's what I would do. I, I would make this be foreshadowing for future events. You know what I mean. <laughs> Second thing, so they're, they're not sure what's going on. They're missing variables, so they don't want to mess with it anymore. They have to. That's the fear. But then there's also the politics thing. Someone in episode would explain to Archer, we're not the only ones temporally protected. There's other people across other times, across other spaces. There's probably thousands of people across the timeline right now who are temporally protected, wondering what to do about this mess that we have now created. We need to be very careful about how we interact with the past now. So between fear and politics, they decide not to just fix things and send them back. Instead, they decide to go with a Cold War approach. One of the the aspects of the Cold War was what we like to call proxy battles. Now, the Cold War didn't exactly invent proxy. Uh, That's certainly a concept that's existed for a long time when it comes to politics. But one of the biggest points, though, is I'm not going to go back and erase future guy. I'm going to send people back with a little bit more information to be able to interact with these people in a specific way that allows them to fix the damage you have caused. I am going to act against you through my proxy. If you remember, during my rewrites, I would have had the Temporal Cold War be one that most everyone's just kind of hands offy during Season 1 until this episode, Shockwave. And now the name actually makes a degree of sense, too, because the point is, after this point, the Cold War would enter the next phase of its existence. Proxy battles. Now, you could argue that the, Tem- the Temple Cold War already had proxy battles thanks to the Cabal, but no, I'm talking about really, c- c- proxy battles, really going into it and people far more overtly, you know, interacting with other people throughout time to get them to interact in ways that will benefit them across the timeline. Thus... Several people trying to basically constantly co- uh, co- interact with the, co- the the timeline in a way that benefits them without destroying their enemies directly, because if they did that, well, then they, their enemies would just go back and erase them. It's an escalation, in short. It is the Cold War heating up, but we're not at the point of being at a shooting war. So... <clears throat> Then eventually, so this is why he contacts the past, contacts to Paul, and is like, "Hey, uh, listen, I need your help." Proxy, proxy, proxy. And then they send Archer back at a critical moment. And Archer, who is now back there, is like, "All right, let's 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 straighten the path." This would also be in direct contrast to the attempts at type two masquerading as type one thing I mentioned back in Shockwave Part One last week. None of this happens, of course. I'm not even sure the Temple Cold War comes up in Season 2. I'm really not. It's something that they started going on the down-low. Uh, most especially because they had no idea what they were doing with it. That's not really an insult. I mean, it kind of is. You know, you're going to introduce a story idea. You probably should know what you want to do with it. But no, this is this is from the creator's mouths. They really did not know what to do with the Temple Cold War. Just like the Maquis. So... Silik uh, continues to be weirdly reasonable. He's still a villain. You know, He still tortures Paul in order to extract information from her. He still beats Reed to extract information from him. He's not a good person. I'm not trying to, to whitewash him. What I'm saying is that he Star Trek tends to portray its villains as mustache-twirling flaws, <laughs> and it's nice to see someone who is more than willing to not kill when he doesn't have to, because he doesn't have to. And that's actually been Silic since Broken Bow, since the beginning. So I'm kind of with this. I wish we saw more of him, but anyways. This then cuts to what is, ironically, the actual main plot of the episode. Politics. Specifically between the Vulcans and Earth. Should this mission continue? I'm going to go ahead and admit that I think that while these two plot threads are tied into each other reasonably well... The amount of time and attention paid to one versus the other is not. There's a huge chunk of this episode, uh, close to eight or nine minutes, of just action, action, action. I have no notes about that whatsoever, because it's just action sequences, which are passable. You know, basically it's basics, pun intended, but uh, done a little bit, basics part two, but it's done a little bit better, because, you know, they actually have more money and budget to throw at it, they got to get those special effects shots in. But otherwise, it's just action I'm fine with action. I've said that before. But I also think there's such a thing as too much action, especially when it comes to Star Trek, and I think that action needs to mean something. And I don't really think this qualifies, especially the whole, oh my god, the ship's about to blow up and we're being attacked, and it's just like, okay. That's just a Tuesday on a Star Trek show. You know, consoles exploding, sparks flying. Yeah, that's normal. (laughs) It probably shouldn't be, if we're being honest, but let's move on. So, Saval is trying to push his agenda. He really wants to get Earth to admit that they shouldn't be out here. Why? Why do you think that is? Now, I know we'll see more of Saval in the future, um, and this will become an interesting thing going forwards, but I'm going to go ahead and give my theory, because I basically already have... Remember Fallen Hero? It's one of my favorite episodes so far. And in Fallen Hero, there was this bit where a well-renowned and polite and diplomatic Vulcan still had an anti-human bias. You remember that? Now imagine Saval, who is not polite and diplomatic, and so forth and so on. I think that he is still specious, and he has not yet reached the point where he has gotten over that. Depaul has. paul has moved forward from her uh, mindset, and so has... Uh, to Prill or Tamir or whatever her name, what her name? God, I don't remember her name. Hang on. Uh, hang on. Hang on. <sighs> of course, I. How many episodes ago was that? Ah, uh, here we go. Here we go. Tell me, uh, Valar, that was her name, Valar. But we're still at the individual level. We still need to change the hearts and minds of the people actually in charge, and we haven't yet. So I'm kind of with the idea that Saval is still anti-human and is just pushing his agenda. We should stop Earth from being out here. You are ruining everything. Stop messing with my stuff. You know what, I'm just going to glue all the Legos together so you can't mess with them anymore. How's that sound? (sighs) So, meanwhile, uh, there's this great bit, I already mentioned this, but there's this great bit where Silic's like, why isn't he responding? Because he's not there. He's gone. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose it never really occurred to Silic, and, and I mean this sincerely, that all the stuff he's doing on behest of the future might alter the future to the extent that the people he's doing it on behest of aren't there anymore. Just food for thought. Anywho. So then, uh, then, then Archer finds a book on the Romulan Star Empire. It's actually the first time they're referenced in this show. They will be showing up again in this season, so that should be interesting. So then we find out that they learn how to communicate through time in high school. What? We also find out they have quantum discriminators in every desk. What? I know that schooling kind of marches forwards, but I, I, I'm sorry, the idea that someone that, that, that it is free, acknowledgeable information on how to communicate through time is the kind of thing we teach to children going through puberty is something I can't quite buy. It's if it, first of all it's nonsense, but second and more importantly, it feels like one of those things they do to make Daniels have that air of mystique that he hasn't really earned. They do this a lot. I actually pointed this out uh, several times. Daniels really likes to push that, oh yeah, no, I'm sort of human. Is Earth still, eh, kind of, you know. Yeah, he re- They really like to push this. I, I say they because this is on the path of the creators. They really like to push the idea that he's just above it all and beyond it all and with that really vague, meaningless kind of drivel to make him sound cooler than he is. Personally, I don't buy a millisecond of it. I think that he specifically went into temporal mechanics because he was interested in it, and he might have gone to a school specifically about that. But I don't buy that every random kid, like if my niece was suddenly born in the future, she would be learning about how to go through uh, you know, temporal interaction. Now I want to add one other thing, just one other complaint, really quick here. Daniels then puts together a communicator to talk to the past. The way they MacGyver this is already silly. But what Daniels actually does is he makes a temporal communicator out of stone knives and bearskins. My point is that I didn't really have a huge issue when Spock did that. You know why? Because Spock is a freaking genius. On a level that other Vulcans are envious of. They never admit it, of course. But I'm serious. Spock is absolutely brilliant. He is a prodigy and an an absolute genius, even amongst his time and his people. That's the kind of person who has probably studied how to actually craft computers from scratch. I could tell you a lot about how a computer works and operates and how networks operate. I've done that professionally for many years. I don't think I could sit down with random materials from from a wreckage from several hundred years ago and put together a working computer out of that. And, and I only point that out to show the, the gap in between me and Spock, how much smarter than me Spock is. Which then leads me to Daniels, who is not Spock. The, the, the And that's why this irritates me even more. It's because I'm stuttering. Now, the reason this irritates me even more is because this would be so easy to work around. All you'd have to do is what I already said. Temporal shielding? The room's fine, the area's fine, right? They have access to the past, they decide to contact the past, there you go, no issues. Instead, they come up with this ridiculous MacGyvering thing, which is, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Then, we cut back to DePaul. Poor Paul. Oh, by the way, this is also when they confirm that Archer... Individually and specifically is critical to the foundation of the federation and, by logical discourse, the entirety of the future for both major quadrants. All of Star Trek rests on Jonathan Archer's soldiers. I call bull on that one. Now, hear me out for a second, because I can just picture people who like Archer being like, "Ah, you just hate Archer." Yes, yes, I do dislike Archer as a character. I do. However, I could see how someone who is pathetic and terrible can work their way out of being pathetic and terrible and into being someone who is a positive influence on that around them. A character arc, if you will. So I'm kind of down with that. The problem is it's emphasized so hard in this episode that Archer is absolutely critical to the foundation of the Federation. This is something that will come up in the future as well. And that kind of irritates me, because what it is, is it's the writers saying, he's very important, he's really important, trust us, he's super important, without earning that. They will eventually earn this. But imagine, if you will, for a second, that in The Man Trap over in TOS, someone jumped down and said that James T. Kirk is one of the most critical elements and critical individuals in all of the, the future history. And if not for him, they will be controlled by endless war and the Klingons will sweep over everything and kill everyone. If it's not for Kirk, 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 Kirk! Now you might say, well, yeah, that's actually true. In which case, you're missing my point. Because that's true... Because they earned it and worked up to that. They didn't just jump back and say Kirk is awesome. They demonstrated over the course of years and shows and movies that Kirk was actually having that large of an impact on history. You see my problem here? There's no need to slam this kind of thing into our face episode. In fact, if anything, they could have mentioned how this specific thing led... Because you're probably thinking, well, hang on. I thought the problem was they didn't send any more missions. The Vulcans kept you trapped, and thus Federation never happens. Okay, yeah. No, no. What the episode outright says is you, Archer in particular, are very important. Daniel says that to his face. And again, this is not the first or last time that's going to happen. And that's what irritates me. It's artificially trying to buff up a character, which, which first of all doesn't even need it. Because Archer will actually go through a character arc and eventually become an interesting character. I know he will. I've seen the rest of this show. But second of all, it completely curtails it because because it's telling, not showing. Because I'm being told how awesome he is, without any actual evidence. Citation needed, you know. Uh, rant off. So, Archer contacts the past. You know, tries to talk to Paul. Could have been a trick. References the trust me. Tucker uses, connects the comms, There's some planning. Hoshi goes to the ducts. I want to talk about that for a second. Hoshi has a bit of claustrophobia. Obviously only a bit, because, you know, she can get over it to an extent. But, I mean, that's how most phobias work, right? We do have the ability to fight against them under the right circumstance. I, I should know. I did a little bit of a mental exercise at this point of the episode. Because she has to go through something absolutely terrifying in order to endure this. I, I, frankly, Garrick does a better job of this exact same thing over in Deep Space Nine, but let's not get into that. So I found myself thinking, if I had to get through a corridor absolutely brimming to the, to the walls with spiders that were crawling and moving and just, just all over the place in order to get to a door to open it to save my niece's life, would I? And the answer is absolutely yes, without hesitation or question. But I can picture exactly what that would be like, and it would be amazingly unpleasant. It would be horrifically unpleasant. Now, add on top of that, you can't be loud. You probably think, what's that have to do with anything? One of the human techniques we have to deal with you know, serious issues where we're we're having trouble coping is to basically scream. Right? Because that was my first thought, just raging through there, yelling at the top of my lungs as I'm just trying to cope with the nightmare that I'm dealing with to reach my niece and save her. So, you can't do that and all of a sudden my sympathy for hoshi goes up substantially interesting thought exercise the next thing we need to do is we need to see hoshi topless because remember sexy this isn't sexy this is stupid <laughs> she literally looks better in the shirt she puts on afterwards than you know wandering around like this with, with her arms really tightly round around her chest It's also really, really childish and stupid that her her shirt catches a thing and she just comes down topless. She probably would have some kind of undergarments on. In fact, the stated reason why she doesn't is so that they can show her topless. Because we need to sex it up, remember? Remember, that's important. We need sex, damn it. (laughs) And this is my problem with that as a mandate. Because, God, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I don't really have a lot of issues with a lot of concepts in fiction. People think I do, and they are wrong. Uh, What I dislike is how they tend to be implemented. And one thing I've observed, this is not always true, but one thing I've observed is that if you walk into something saying, I'm going to do X, I have to do X. If it's a checkbox that you need to tick in your fiction, it tends to be worse. Not always, but usually. If you decide to naturally add more sexy to your show... I admit I'm not sure how to do that off the top of my head because I didn't put a lot of thought on this, but if if you were just making your show and you're like, you know what, let's show more of the central side of Hoshi. Well then you might get two days and two nights where that was actually handled pretty well, where she just naturally and maturely hooked up with another guy who was hot, who she was into, and he was into, and the two of them just had sex. That's sexier than what we have in this episode. This is just awkward. Because it's just a check mark. You with me? <sighs> also, this is just personal preference, but midriffs—that's how you get sexy. Anyways, <clears throat> well, it's it, wide. Look, I went through puberty in the '90s. Okay, that's all I'm saying. So, <laughs> um, then they retake the ship, and like I said, it's lake base. I, I don't really have anything to say about this. Silic um, tries to contact Future Guy. And it's actually Archer. Ha ha ha. Ah, that's cute. Knowing what we know now, that is very cute. I would have restructured this, these scenes slightly. I hate to nitpick, but there's this bit where Reed lies in a manner we know is a lie. I wouldn't have shown that on camera, because the moment Reed lies, all tension is gone. We now know that this is part of the plan. Having instead a bit where they're trying to fight an engineering and then the, the fighting leads to explosions. That's, uh, and then cut to Reed who's being interrogated and he's like, oh, tell us what you know about the thing. It's a communicator. Tell us what you know about the thing. And then cutting away, not showing the rest of the interrogation, show Reed being thrown into his quarters, show them, you know, giving the thing to Silicon, him using it to contact future guy, maintains some of the suspense of what exactly the plan is and thus the audience doesn't know and is trying to guess where exactly they're going with this, then the communicator is used to contact Future Guy and ha ha, it's actually Archer, which also serves as a kind of an untwist because it makes people think that Future Guy is not Archer. So that would be keen, but anyways. But that's not what happens. Instead, what happens is he contacts him and there's a punch and they're firing energy weapons at warp, which is stupid, and their hull plating is down, which is stupid, and there's explosions and sparks... Then they leave Silica alive, because, you know, honestly, I'm not even sure if that's the right call at this point. You know, you never want to leave a a vengeful enemy at your back, but at the same time, sparing him because he spared you might not be a bad trade-off. I don't know. That's kind of a judgment call. So then the episode wraps up, and what we have next is the Gazelle Speech. If you're familiar with people mocking Enterprise, you're probably familiar with the Gazelle Speech. I don't know if the speech is bad or if this is a bacula problem as I've mentioned several times in season 1. It's not as bad as I remember. The whole speech is not as bad as it's been mocked or derided. As usual, you know, exaggeration is one of those hallmarks of comedy, but it's not a good speech. You'll also notice the speech is also completely meaningless. He gives that speech and no one's convinced. Then to Paul gives a much better speech and they state outright in the episode Paul is the one who actually convinced them and changed their minds. Huh. So the Gazelle speech is literally a bad speech in-universe. Archer just keeps rolling those twos, I'm telling you. couple thoughts, though. T- Paul's speech also has some issues. Noteworthy, they, she goes out of her way to <sighs> once again condemn the idea of spying on our enemies because spying's bad in fairness i could see it argued and i I anticipate some of you have seen this as well i could see it argued that instead of her talking about spying being bad what she meant is hiding a spying outpost inside a monastery was bad and uh, okay i I could kind of see that still don't actually agree you do want your spy outpost to be not obvious so it's not a giant blinking target over its face but at the same time since we're trying to de-escalate with the andorians openly spying might actually help with that it also might make things worse i don't know that's, that's kind of a tricky call so i'm not sure on that one but either way what really caught me was not the speech itself which was just you know it's whatever but it was the fact that she gave the speech at all that she rose to the defense of the humans and their right to stay out here that I think is what really actually changed minds and turned heads. A Vulcan defended the human right to not be observed, to not to to get out from under the helicopter parents. And that I think is what made them think, okay. They're still specious. There's still some biases on every side, and they're all kind of looking at each other like, hmm. but someone of my tribe on my team. You know, the red team decided to be like, you know what, maybe the blue is not so bad. And so the other reds, even though this is arguably wrong, are now more inclined to think the same thing, because after all, it was one of their own that said it. Not too bad episode. Which is good, because this wasn't that great of an episode. Not a great way to start season two. Before I end here, I want to comment on something. I mentioned uh, last week, I'm pretty sure I mentioned, sorry, I had these stupid, these, these there's no way to lock these in place, so if I apply a little bit of pressure onto my uh, armrest, they just kind of, I, I swear I don't do it on purpose, I apologize guys. I've spoken defense of season ones, right? Season one of TNG had several Drak episodes, and then it was actually pretty good. Season one of Voyager had some Drak episodes, and then it was actually pretty good. Season 1 of DS9 had some Drak episodes, and then it was actually pretty good. And I, I could just repeat this for everything in Star Trek show, other than Discovery of Picard, which I haven't watched yet, or Lower Decks. I need to keep adding that one to the list. So, that's still true here. But um, one of the other interesting trends is that the Season 2s tend to be overall worse while there are some good episodes in Season 2 of TNG, there's also some absolutely face-palming ones and some truly terrible ones. DS9 Season 2 is almost completely forgettable. You could just skip it and barely miss anything. Season 2, except for the end, obviously. That's when things actually start to pick up. Season 2 of Voyager is probably one of the worst seasons of all of Star Trek history, and contains a slew of terrible episodes, including Threshold. And here we are at Season 2 of Enterprise. Now, remember, I don't remember Season 2. What I actually am sharing this for is because I want this up front. Because in about a year, actually... Well, uh, about, uh, what, six months? Something like that? It'll take us about six months to go through Season 2. So in about six months, you'll be able to watch you know my conclusion when we get to uh, Bounty, I think, is the last episode. And you'll be able to see if Season 2 continued the trend, and I was right, which sucks... Or if I'm wrong, and season two actually bucks the trend, which would be awesome, I guess we'll find out. I hope you will take the journey with me, because you gotta have faith!